This morning we're at Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 13. Our text will be this morning, verses 13 through 21. As we think about one fool's treasure, or a fool and his treasure. And following on the heels of where we've been here in Luke chapter 12, especially in what light of what we considered last week, we talked about having a, a fear that dispels all other fears, that we ought to fear God, we ought to, which is what Jesus says, fear Him who is able to do more than just to kill the body, but once He's killed the body, He's able also to cast the body into hell. That's who we need to fear. And we ought to have a fear of a denying Christ, the cost that's that comes to us is once a person chooses to deny Christ, as Jesus says, if you deny me, then I'm going to deny you in the day of judgment. Having a fear of blasphemy against the Spirit of God. Having a fear of committing a sin, of seeing all that the Spirit of God reveals to us of who Christ is and, and the sin of their day, which He says it's unpardonable. The sin of blasphemy. That if you... You see what the Spirit of God reveals to you about Jesus Christ, and you walk away from that. There's no other means to come. There's nothing else that's going to bring you. So that sin of, of remaining unrepentant when the Spirit of God has revealed. So that's what you need to fear. And so it seems that once you get to the end of what Jesus has talked about, and we considered last week into our text here today, that there must have been something of a break in Jesus' words. As Jesus evidently had, had finished what He had to say about this particular issue because it's not something that He ever goes back to in, this, in our text here. And so in this break, there's a, a voice that comes out from the crowd and seems to, to violate the spirit of what's going on here. This violates the spirit of what Jesus is saying. The opportunity as Jesus has been speaking to just give pause. Think about these things. Think about fearing God when you're tempted to fear men. And so in that moment of, of pause here, this, this voice comes forth from the crowd and it's a voice who has a, a family concern. It's a concern over his portion of an inheritance that his brother evidently is being slow or even unwilling to share. And so he asked Jesus to settle this dispute. And this becomes the context of Jesus Next lesson. Isn't that something how Jesus just takes what comes <laughs> and then he just applies important and deep lessons of life to those who are here. And it becomes a lesson on greed, a lesson on covetousness. So it's going to direct us not only this week, but also next week as we read on to think about treasures. Everyone likes a treasure hunt, don't you? So we're going to go on a treasure hunt this week and next week. But, you know, it's not a treasure hunt that we're going outside and, and look at the end of the rainbow or, or look through somebody's attic or try to find those types of treasure. It's an inward search, isn't it? We're going to be searching the inner recesses of the heart. 
and allow Jesus to search out those treasures which we hold. To consider this week what our treasure is. As we look at verses 13 through 21. Is it something that's for us? Or is it something that's toward God? And next week, Lord willing, as we consider where our treasure is. Verses 23 through 34 of our of our chapter here of next week and focusing on that question that he asked or not the question the statement he makes in verse 34 where your treasure is there will your heart be also so we're we're thinking about treasures today and and next week let's see where this treasure hunt may lead us as we go to the word of god this morning luke chapter 12 verse 13 and following and someone in the crowd said to him teacher Tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter over you? And he said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a certain rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself saying, What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? And he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grains and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you've many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now we understand that every benefit that comes along has its downside, doesn't it? You know, we can think about that. As I was talking with Robert Graham this week, and Robert and Vivian and his family are going to be moving here in just a few weeks, and they've been looking for a house to rent. And we, I talked to them about it, and they actually secured a house last this past week that they'll be renting. And just in the process of talking to them about that, I was talking to Beth. I thought, you know, renting has its attractions, doesn't it? You know, I think about having, when something goes wrong with the house, I can call the landlord and say, could you come fix this? Or the yard needs to be mowed, and that's my landlord's job. I don't have to worry about that. You know, it has its perks, doesn't it? But it also has its downsides. And we know the same thing. We call it owning a house. We understand that we're still we're in the process of, of paying for this home. Has its Perks has its advantages. You can drive a nail wherever you want it, and you're not too concerned about messing up something that belongs to someone else. Now, there's a sense of this is ours to do as we please with, but it has its downsides, right? It does have the things that go wrong that we're responsible for, that we have to fix. I was up on my roof just a few weeks ago cleaning out my gutters, and I'm looking at this, and I'm thinking, it's not going to be long. New shingles <laughs> up here on this thing. You know, so there's the downside of that. We've talked in situations that Beth and I have been in. You know, we have the, the benefit and the luxury, I think, of having two vehicles. But there have been times I thought, man, it's just 
let's just have one car just the expense because you know one car you don't have to pay insurance on to all this kind of stuff but it's convenient isn't it has the upside has the downside well certainly that's true in regard to earthly possessions of any sort they have their upside and we re- we recognize do we not the convenience of having a little bit of extra, a little bit of extra money to, to use for what we may need it for. But Jesus tells us very clearly here, there's a downside. There's a downside to, to worldly possessions and earthly possessions and things that we realize that to live in this world, you need these things to some degree. But the downside is when these things become all-consuming, when these things become what we live for, when these are the things that we begin to measure our life by, what we have or, conversely, what we do not have. There's great danger there. And so Jesus gives to us some warnings from our text here today as He gives this story about this rich We need to understand that when Jesus is telling this story, He's not talking to rich people. By and large, those who are in the within earring range of Jesus as He is sharing this story would be pretty ordinary, down-to-earth, relatively poor people of the day. But the problem is the same. Just because you don't have these things doesn't mean you can't long and want and pursue these things. And so the, the, the warning today is not to those who necessarily have, although certainly it's applicable there. But the warning is to those who may not have, but you wish you did. And so you've given yourself to pursuing these things. You still define life for what you have and what you don't have. So Jesus here... He warns us the dangers of of earthly treasures. And that we're going to consider this morning. First of all, the first danger that we see there is the deceitfulness of mammon. The deceitfulness of mammon. And there mammon just speaking of earthly possessions. Here this break that's come in Jesus teaching. There's this voice that comes from the crowd. He's wanting Jesus to help settle this dispute that he's got with his brother about this inheritance. But again, evidently his brother is not... Sharing it with him as he should and for whatever reason. And Jesus' response here is he sharply refuses to enter into this argument or this, or this issue. He refuses to be the arbitrator here. Simply put, there's two reasons. Number one, there were already those judges that were in, set up in place to settle d- such disputes. If he had a dispute, he could go somewhere and have it settled. He didn't need Jesus to intervene here. So Jesus doesn't intervene for that reason. But also, we recognize that Jesus was concerned about much higher things, wasn't He? Jesus' business was a much more important issue than dividing inheritances. See that everybody gets their fair share of the money. He's involved in much higher things with His life and with His ministry, so He just simply will not give Himself to that task. However... Jesus does seize the moment, doesn't He? He comes and He seizes the moment, the opportunity that's been laid before Him to address in this context heart treasures. Now, likely, 
there's some application to be made by this individual, this man who has come to Jesus. I mean, can't you just imagine that Jesus is hearing this man's words, but is also piercing into his heart. And he is looking and his eyes are penetrating to the depth of his heart. And he's seeing here that there's more here than a concern for justice to be done. There's a great danger here. And so Jesus speaks this word to, I think, likely to, to this individual. But also appropriately addressed to a much wider group. Verse 15 tells us, it says, he said to them. Not just to him, not just to this man. He said to them, he said to his disciples, the twelve, the larger group of disciples, and even the multitude that were there around them. As we saw in the first part of chapter 12, it says that so many thousands of the multitude had gathered together. That they're stepping on one another. Jesus speaks to all who hear. And his warning here that he, that he addresses, verse 15 says, beware and be on your guard. Be on your guard against every form of greed. Be on your guard against, some translations say, all covetousness. What is that? I mean, that's a word we know. It's one of the Ten Commandments, isn't it? Don't covet. What is that? It's just simply this greedy desire to have and to hold earthly possessions for ourselves. In other words, we consider the things of this world, earthly possessions, and we, we want them. And if we've got them, we want to hold them. We want to keep them for ourselves. And Jesus, word of warning is, you beware of that. You be warned against greed like that capturing your heart. Jesus thinks it's important. It's important enough to make the top ten, isn't it? Not to covet and he gives a reason here in verse 15. He says, you don't, don't let covetousness capture your heart. Beware of a guard against it. He says the last part, for not even when one has an abundance, does his life consist of his possessions. So what's he dealing with here? He's dealing with the deception, the deceitfulness of mammon, the deceitfulness of worldly possessions, the deceitfulness of riches. Jesus calls it in Matthew chapter 13, 22, there in the parable of the seeds landing on the different soils, that there is a deceitfulness of riches and possessions. That deceitfulness goes something like this. It reasons something like this, that if only I had this much, if I only had this, you know, and Tevi's amount there in Philly on the roof is just a small fortune. You know, I don't want a lot, just a small fortune. If I had that, then well, I could really be living. Could really be enjoying life. And that the, the problems as I see them in my life would be so much resolved. If I just had this. So what happens is we begin to follow that line of thinking. And Jesus warns here in verse 21 is that we begin to lay up treasures for yourself. Laying up treasures for ourselves rather than being rich toward God. So Jesus warns against, he can't says, listen. Even if you have 
an abundance of worldly possessions. That is not what life is about. That is not what defines what life is. That is not your life. If you've got it. And so to those of you who don't have it, and you're seeing the ones who do, and you're thinking, I wish I did, his word here is, don't be deceived in thinking that life is having all these things. That's not life. It's not life. Life doesn't have anything to do with what you do have and what you don't have. You cannot even take all the possessions of this world if you own them, and buy one more second of life with it. It's not life. But we're tempted to think that way, aren't we? We're tempted to think that, boy, life would just be easy if we just had this, if we just had more. And that's what it always amounts to. It's just more, a little bit more that I can have. Well, if life is not about what we have and life is not about what we don't have and, and it doesn't necessarily, incidentally, have to be what we redeem worldly possessions. It can be places of prestige or position. You know, it's by how many letters you have after your name. You know, how many degrees you've got. Or it can be how many, how many digits are in your salary or whatever the case may be. But if that's not life, what is it? How do we define life? And I think Jesus gives the answer here in verse 21. The essence of life is not your worldly possessions. The essence of life is this. The last part of verse 21, it is being rich toward God. That is life. It's being rich toward God. And actually the word that's translated toward is being rich in God. So, life has to do with one's relationship, how he lives in relation to God. If you're going to speak about life, you cannot consider life, you cannot speak about life without considering God. He is the source of life. He is the essence of life itself for the believer. He sustains us. He keeps us. And think of it as believers. The wealth that is ours, the riches that we have in God, the riches that are found in God, the rich, the riches of pardon for our sin. How much do you pay for that? And yet it's a reality that must be dealt with. You've got to deal with sin some way. You can't pay for pay, pay it off. The debt can't be paid off with money or silver. You can't even just ignore it and it go away. You've got to deal with it. And what a, a wealth it's given to us and the pardon for our sin to know that we have peace with God. How much do you pay for peace? You can't buy peace with God, can you? But it's a wonderful treasure. It's a, a richness that God gives to us that we have peace with Him. And, and just the full spectrum of what is ours in salvation. 
Adoption into the family of God. How much do you pay to become a child of God? What is that worth? Put a dollar mark on that. And that's the essence of life. The essence of life is your relationship with your Creator. With God. And so that temptation of the deceitfulness of mammon, the deceitfulness of riches, that, that it appears to be more important than it really is, but you can get it all, folks. And you can, as we've studied even earlier, you can get it all and lose your soul. And you've lost. Think of the wealth that is granted to those who repent. Those who repent, what do you surrender? You surrender those things which were of no value to you. You surrender your sin. You surrender your rebellion. You surrender your defiance. You give all that up for what? For forgiveness and for peace with God through Jesus Christ. What a treasure. And that is life. How does Jesus define Eternal life. It's not just that you have another day. Eternal life is that you know God. That's what he says in John chapter 17. It's high priestly prayer. This is eternal life. Not that there's always a tomorrow. This is eternal life. They know you. That's eternal life. The essence of life is to walk with God, to know God. So we must be careful that we do not believe the lie that earthly wealth brings life. Yeah, it may bring some comforts. We recognize that. But that is not how we choose to define life. And the worldly possessions will always seek to make themselves out to be more than they are. Seek to, place, to take the place of God. The true wealth is having God and all that proceeds from Him. And so that the pursuit of earthly goods is always subservient to our pursuit of God. In other words, we recognize that we have some responsibilities that to some degree we have to pursue worldly goods. That's why we have jobs and salaries and those things that we do. We understand that to some degree we pursue these things, but the pursuit of those things is always subservient to the higher pursuit. And the higher pursuit is God Himself. So that what I do in my worldly pursuits... I do those things for the glory of God and in my pursuit of Him. And I want to say it this way. We just, I have a job to simply pay the expenses. My job is to serve Christ and share the gospel. (laughs) And so I do these other things to pay the bills. So we work and we earn, we save, but always delighting in Him to beware. Of the deceitfulness of mammon, the deceitfulness of riches, to think we begin to think, if I only had this, if this then then life would be great. If you have God, if Christ, it doesn't get any better. There's nothing more to get. He is all. Second thing that we see here. The dangers and the downside of earthly treasures is the depravity of mind. The depravity of mind 
We look at this parable that Jesus tells, this story of this rich man. And beginning in verse 16, he tells this parable about this certain rich man whose land was productive. And he begins to think within himself, what am I going to do? I've got, I've got so much coming in. All these crops have come in. I don't know what to do with them all. Can't, don't have place for them. So he reasons through, and this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones, larger ones, and store all my grains and my goods and... Spread to my soul, soul, you've got plenty to last you for many years. Sit back and relax. Give me the remote. Eat, drink, and be merry. You know, it's interesting as you look at this parable that Jesus tells. Jesus presents this rich man in, in what are just what I would term is typically ordinary. In other words, Jesus, when he's telling this story, you don't get the idea that this man is a particularly wicked man. You don't get the idea that this man is filled with envy and greed and selfishness. He just tells a story about a man who's rich and he's had this bumper crop come in and he's figured out what to do with it. He figures out what he's going to do. He's going to take it easy for a few years. But he doesn't present him in... Any evil terms? It's a man with a dilemma. So he reasons through this matter. He's determined his course of action. But what's the problem here? Well, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? The problem is not what he says and not what he does. The problem is what he does not say and what he does not do. It's one of those situations where the silence is deafening here. Because we see this is a man who says, first of all, in verse 17, he reasons to himself. Verse 19, he speaks to himself. And the word I appears in here, even in the Greek, six times. He considers only himself. doesn't even count the times he says my or mine. Just the word I in these few verses listed six times. So what do we see here? There's no mention. There's no thought of God. There's no prayers of, of gratitude. I mean, what do you see here? You say, man, verse 16, the land of a certain rich man was very productive. I mean, he doesn't even get the credit here. <laughs> the land was productive. So where do you recognize it? We recognize that the land is productive because God is the one. God is the one who causes men to prosper. No prayers of gratitude to God for what God has done. No prayers of requesting for wisdom, Lord. Well, now that I have this abundance of, of food, what, what should I do with that? It's all missing here. There's no mention or no thought of ministering to others, even in the name of God. You had within the Old Testament laws, if you may remember, if you've read through the Old Testament, we read here just a few weeks ago as a family, where God gave instructions to the children of Israel. He said, when you go out there and, that you, and you are harvesting your crops, He says, you don't go to the very corners. No, you don't, you don't go out there and harvest what you've put in the ground and try to get every little bit. And if you go and you, and you leave some or you drop some, don't go back for it. You leave that there for the poor and for the widows and the orphans. You let that stay there. In other words, I want you to be thinking in your minds about helping other people. And so one way to do it is don't go out there and, and scrape it clean. 
And there's no thought here in this man about anyone else, is there? There's no mention here about, boy, there's probably some people I could help here. It's all absent. Again, it's the silence that is here. He's just a typical, ordinary man who's had a success. He's had a bumper crop. Typical, ordinary, natural, depraved man. He's a man who, according to Paul in Romans chapter 8, who walks and he lives according to the flesh. His mind is on the things of the flesh. He is hostile toward God. He is unwilling. He is unable to subject himself to God's law or to please Him. I don't see all that. We'll look in Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 8, and there you'll see it. Where's any hostility toward God? No, he doesn't mention it, but I don't see any hostility. It's there. Because the depraved man, the depraved mind is always hostile toward God. Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 8. He's a man who is simply dead in his sin. Walking according to the course of this world. A child of wrath. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. He's a man who is unable to understand, hence he is rejecting the things of God. 1 Corinthians 2.14 He is a man who is blinded by the God of this world. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 So aren't you reading an awful lot into this? No, I'm just reading, this is what a man is apart from God. That's what I'm reading into it. Just go to the Scripture and see what it says about men who are outside Christ. Go read what Scripture says about Ephesians chapter 2 of what you were like before you were in Christ. And that's what this man is. It's just an ordinary, depraved man. No thought of God. You see, this parable simply depicts... Any man that is left to himself. There's, there's no thought of God in his conversations. You know, you can look at what this man is saying to himself. This is water cooler conversation. This is Starbucks conversation where people are sitting and talking over a meal. And what are they talking about if they're not in Christ? They're talking about possessions. They're talking about this and that and sports and whatever the case may be. Whatever their treasures are. And there's nothing of God. Rare is the case where you go out and you see people and they're talking about God. If you get people talking about their, their futures and their stocks and their, their bonds and their retirements, where's God in this thing? So this is a pretty ordinary man. This guy, this is Joe Cool Americana, isn't he? He fit right in. He can talk to himself. But he doesn't pray. He reads within himself. He talks to himself. He doesn't go outside of himself. He gives no thought to God. And that is the man apart from Christ. That is the depraved mind. It's pretty ordinary, isn't it? The problem of laying up earthly treasures is they bring a a false sense of security. Because many people who are wealthy, they never are brought to a place where they consider their own limitations. 
They're never brought to a place to recognize their need of and their dependence upon God. So, you have what's even get described in the, in the book of Revelation of the church of Laodicea. You remember their view of themselves? How does, what does Jesus say of, of the church in Laodicea? He said that you say, I'm rich, I've become wealthy, I have need of nothing. That's the evaluation of the church of Laodicea. That's the evaluation of the depraved man. And Jesus said to the church of Laodicea, You're wretched. You're miserable. You're poor. You're blind. And you're naked. You've got nothing. You know, they could evaluate. we got it all. And Jesus says, here's my evaluation. You have nothing. So what's the invitation from that? The invitation that Jesus gives there in the Revelation is, I advise you, buy gold from me. <laughs> buy f- from me gold that you might become rich. Receive from me white garments that you may clothe yourself. And I solve to anoint your eyes that you may see. You need to receive these things from me. You need me. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 55 verse 1. He tells us there. He says, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. And I like this next phrase. You who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Oh, and I don't have any money. He says, you come and you buy. Come to the waters. You buy and you eat. That's grace, isn't it? You come buy from me. I'm not going to pay for it with. You just come. I'm paying for it. We need to, as believers, we need to understand a couple of things. First of all, we need to understand the nature of the battle that we're facing when we share Christ with men and women. We need to understand something of the battle we face just going out into the world in, in a culture here in the West, in the United States, in a culture that's pretty well, well-to-do as far as our worldly possessions are seen. It's a battle to go out there and to talk to people about they're a need, and people aren't used to thinking in terms of need, because many people are doing quite well. I know it's not across the board, but many are. We need to understand that when we share the gospel, we're speaking with those who are blinded by the God of this world, and apart from the grace of God, to open their eyes, to cause them to see that we can speak, and we can speak, and we can try to, to cause them to understand, and they will not. They can't see it. They can't get it. We also need to know the tense of our own hearts. I mean, one thing to look at this and say, well, I'm glad I'm not like that. You know, I am a believer. I do pray. I do recognize my need of God. But are we not in our own hearts as believers? Are we not all prone to that sin of prayerlessness? 
I mean, let's face it. How many decisions do we make? How many things that we do? If we don't have to pray, much of what we do, we do not pray. We have decisions to make. If, we're not, if we don't have to consider a lot of issues, we just say, oh, yes or no, we'll do it. And give no thought to prayer. So in effect, we may be believers, but we're living as atheists. Just doing what I want to do. Doing what I think I can do. Just kind of reasoning within myself and talk within myself and come to a decision and make a decision and not prayed. Or am I the only one here like that? Listen, I'd rather not have to pray. There's times I just say, Lord, I'd just as soon not to pray about this. Just take care of it. I don't want to pray. Because we don't like having to be humbled again, do we? We also know the tendency of our heart to be selfish. To think of ourselves. The depravity of the mind. You know, one of the... the uh, the teachings of other scripture, which have been identified as this total depravity of mankind, but we've, the total depravity does not mean that men are as wicked and evil as they could be. It just simply means that they are wicked and evil to the core of their being. Every aspect of their nature has been affected by the fall. So there's nothing within the nature of man that's untouched by this sin nature. And it's opposed to God. It's resistant to God. So we need to understand the depravity of mind that, that people are dealing with. The, the tendency, the nature of man is to eliminate God from his thinking. So you have here in this parable simply a man who, who lives according to his nature. He's geared that way. He looks at himself, he thinks of himself, and he never prays, never thinks of God. The depravity of mind. Thirdly, we see that the danger... To be considered the downside of earthly treasures. That is the destiny of men. Verse 20. God said to him, you fool, this very night, your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? You know, it's not the picture here is not that this individual has died and he's before God. And God has said to him, you fool, which he well could. The picture is. Here's his man living his life on the earth, making his plans. And God is in heaven. Almost the picture that you see there in the book of, of, book of Proverbs, it, laughing to scorn. You fool. You've made plans for years and years and years to come. But you know what? You've not made plans for this night. This night, your soul will be required of you. You've made plans for all the possibilities, all the things that may happen. If it comes famine, I've got it. I've got food stored up for years to come. I'm okay. I'm prepared for whatever comes. For all the uncertainties of the future. And you failed to prepare for the one absolute certainty of your future. And that is that you're going to die. You're a fool. 
I don't know about you. I don't think I want to hear those words from God. <laughs> you fool. You're a fool. One who is devoid of sense. One who is wise in his own eyes. All these plans that you've made. All these possessions that you've stored up. What good are they all going to be for you now? He is the supreme judge of all the earth. And you're not ready to stand before him. The words of Paul to the church at Rome. And all will appear before the judgment seat of God. No exceptions. All will appear before the judgment seat of God. Each one of us will give an account of himself to God. In Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed for man to die once, and after this comes judgment. So this was the man who provided for everything except for the certainty of death. And it's coming upon him. You know, as we read this, we can rejoice, certainly as believers, that we, and God in his grace, that he has prepared us for that day, has he not? That day when we step from time into eternity, whether it be in, when Christ returns or, or if we die and, and we're, our souls are brought into his presence. What a grace of God that he has prepared us for that day, that we have the assurance that we know we know the final verdict to be pronounced on our behalf. And it is this. Justified. There it is. See, there is a future aspect to when that final verdict is declared. We have been justified, no doubt. But that verdict will be proclaimed justified. Declared righteous. But the destiny of men is not in the hands of men. The destiny of men is in the hands of God. There is one God, and He is the supreme judge. All will appear before Him. For, so, so for a man to, to live his life, for all the earthly possessions that he can accumulate, to believe that life is, is summed up in these things, Jesus tells you there's an ultimate reality you need to consider here. That is that you're going to die. And once you die, all these possessions that you thought at one occasion were dear and you sought to embrace, or you did embrace them, they're gone. You're not taking them with you. That's certain. We read that, didn't we, this morning? You brought nothing into this world. It is certain you will take nothing with you when you go. And you will stand before God and give an account. So where are your treasures today? Treasures for yourself. Laying up treasures for yourself. And certainly I'm not, I'm not saying that we should never save. I'm not saying that we should not make reasonable plans for the future. I'm not saying that at all. I don't think the Scripture teaches that. But I'm saying that we must be aware of an, what I would deem an inappropriate concern for these things. And believe that, the, that my security, whether now or in 25 years from now, rest in the things that I have. Your security is in God, dear child of God. He is your future. 
And that we give attention to these things as is necessary and as is appropriate and as is good and as is right. But that we make sure that these things are always subservient to the greater truth. And that is that I am living for the glory of God. And I am, in fact, rich in God, rich toward God. I am rich in the relationship that I have with Him. I have Him and He is enough. And if I can't have both, if I can't have God and a measure of worldly possessions, thank you, I'll do without these lesser things. I have a wealth of resources in Him. He is my pursuit. He is the longing of my heart. He is my treasure. Where's your treasure? What is your treasure? God give us grace that it be in in God through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we know that You've revealed Yourself to us as a priceless treasure even in the parable of the pearl of great price, worth the loss of all so that that one field could be purchased, that that pearl might be gained. Lord, we also know that we've not esteemed you as precious above all things on so many occasions, that there is within our hearts that proneness to wander, proneness to leave the one that we love, Oh, Lord, it's not because there is any lacking on your part, but it is the foolishness of our own hearts. So, Lord, we ask for wisdom and for grace to give these things whatever attention is appropriate and necessary, but, Lord, that our, our sights be set upon God, our sights be set upon heaven. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his name's sake. Amen.